We at Greater Than Code recently asked our supporters, listeners, and friends of the show for their opinion on what organizations we could donate to that would make the greatest immediate impact for the Black community and the injustices they're experiencing right now and always. Based on the response, we've decided to split our $1,000 donation equally between the Bail Project, the Black Lives Matter Foundation, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the National Urban League. We urge all our listeners to do what you can to support these important organizations as well. Good morning. Welcome to a special episode of Greater Than Code, because there are some things more important than code going on right now. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I'm happy to be here with my friend and co-host, Jamie Hampson. Thanks, Jessica. And I'm happy to introduce my friend, Coraline Ada MP. Hi, everyone. Um, we have a special episode today. Um, normally, our episodes are on a three-week cycle, but with everything going on in the world today, we wanted to bring together a very powerful group of voices to share their thoughts and inspire you, the listeners, to action. I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves and tell you who they are in their own voices. Hello, I'm Tim Creighton. I'm the founder of Hashtag Cause a Scene um, community online, as well as the Hashtag Cause a Scene podcast. I am a tech leadership coach. Um, and I'm just launched the anti-racist economist. And so I will be talking a lot in the future about corporate blackface. My name is Sheree Mitchell. I grew up in Harlem in the, in the Bronx in the projects uh, in a time that people didn't think that black girls could code. I started coding at 10. I later founded the first women of color organization to focus on women and girls of color to get them online and into tech back in 1999 before it was cool and, and nobody wanted to even work on that issue, thought I was crazy to do so. And fast forward, uh, working on policy in the tech industry, I have now been focused on online harassment and engagement issues for women uh, of color online and in the industry. And we are specializing right now during this particular moment on disinformation in the Black community, in our elections, and including the disinformation now that we're faced with COVID. I also work with a colleague on a project called Human First Tech, where we focus on issues that are human first, tech second. Hi there, my name is Isa Harico Velasco. I'm a software engineer, open source maintainer. I am an overall good gal and international woman of mystery. Um, I've spent uh, my life in uh, three places primarily, which is San Francisco, the Philippines, and New York. So pardon my accent, if it switches around, it's like my souvenir as I've grown up. I currently work at the Internet Archive, working on the website, and I am also a founding board member of a nonprofit called Bridge Foundry. It's an umbrella organization that supports other bridges across the United States and the world that teaches women and underrepresented minorities how to code for free. So the world is on fire. And as is usually the case, black and brown people are bearing the brunt of the damage, both from COVID and from our increasingly awful political situation. I know better than to ask you how you're doing. 
but I'd love to hear kind of what's what's at the forefront of your minds right now. For me, it's I want to challenge your statement of increasingly as a black woman, this has always been our reality. Just because white folks are waking up does not mean that we it did not exist. And I challenge that right off the bat because I am so sick of this narrative that I keep hearing. First, it was this awakening in 2016, and um, now it's 2020. If you have not seen enough Black bodies being destroyed on camera, then fuck you. That's not to you, Coraline. That's just... Yeah, that's fair. That's a very (laughs) fair point. Thank you for challenging that. I totally agree with you that uh, a lot of people are coming to see for the first time for a lot of people the world as it has been for a long time for black and brown folks. I'm hoping that some of them are listening today and will learn from what you all have to say and be inspired to go and do some learning on their own. So for me, the stories that we're hearing or the things that people feel like that all of a sudden their eyes are open is usually has to do with generations, right? Mm-hmm. They've lived in existence or their family has lived in existence that didn't have to live through any of the things that you're witnessing now. And most of that is because cameras didn't exist, mm-hmm. right? Social media didn't exist. Or it's still talking about social media being in existence for, what, 10 years? And so people are opening their eyes because now they get to see a, a global vision of what happens to black and brown people across the globe. We, of course, seen protests across the globe on this one particular issue, but it wasn't this one. It has been many, many, many lives. Some we don't name, some we don't know. There's a narrative that I always push back against that only black men are dying because that's not true. Black women are dying by the police uh, and and police brutality from Sandra Bland, Brianna, uh, Taylor to Corinne Gaines, and there's so many more. And I always feel frustrated when when pe- when I listen to people and all their narrative is just black men because it's not true. I don't know why our community separates like that so many times because there is no black woman that's walking around not experiencing racism the same way that a black man is. It didn't happen during slavery and is not happening now. There are other narratives that go along with our issues, which is sexism um, and sexual assault. That aren't, I feel like aren't naturally, it it does happen, a part of the narrative uh, of what happens to black men in police custody. And I just think that that people don't realize, uh, in my opinion, any of our historical narrative. And the reason that we're here now is that we're just repeating a cycle. And a very old cycle that started from 1619. And every so often we get to this part where we're protesting and trying to change the narrative. It changes a little bit. And then people go back trying to forget it. I literally had to post again about Tulsa. It's been 99 years since Tulsa. And most white people didn't know it existed at all. That the only time they saw it or recognized it was because of a, a, of a TV show called, um, Watchmen, mm-hmm. um, and, and people will still. I you have no idea how many people who are my friends were like, I never even knew about Tulsa, and I was just like, how do you not know? All these lived experiences that white people don't experience and don't believe is real because they don't experience it has been the narrative. And so that is part of where we are today because now people are going, okay, I see it. But we've seen it for years now, since before 2016, right? This social media has done this. The the challenge is the way in which we're treated uh, when we tell our stories, the way in which media tells our stories without our voices. A great example is Nicole's project on um, 1619. You got white scholars telling black scholars that um, 
They're telling the story wrong. That is historical. That's who we are. The fact that people don't want to admit that Tulsa existed also tells the narrative that what, what, when we find out about those stories and we have mass murders, white people killing black people, that they're not a part, a part of your crime stats, but you have no problem saying black on black crime. Why are we here? Because all of those narratives allow us to make what was happening uh, that, that we're protesting against normal. That the, the only criminals out here are, are black and brown people. That white people can't be criminals while we're watching them right now break the rule of law in government on a daily basis. We are not the villains in this American horror story. Y'all are. And so you just spoke to something I speak about and I increasingly have people in my community is like, damn, Kim, I didn't see it until you because I talk about this constantly. White, the narrative is whiteness is always cast as a hero or victim and never a villain. And white supremacy allows, and when I say white supremacy, I mean the systems, the institutions and the policies allow white people, whiteness, white presenting people, anybody who the closest you get to white to be in those roles of white um, hero or victim and never villain. Think about the old shoot 'em up Westerns that the United States is famous for. Every time there's an assault on a black person, all it takes is a white woman, because it's usually a white woman, to start crying. They offer a bland apology. And the first thing you know is, who bless it, I'm just having to breathe right now, is that the expectation of the injured party who is has to now, if they don't want to become a villain, has to now accept an apology from this racist individual. That is victimization and terrorization on top of victimization and terrorization because this narrative does not end. There is always a loophole that allows whiteness to be only hero or victim and never a villain, even with a gun in its hands. I'm sorry, or a machete, which which happened the other day. Like or story. a crossbow, a crossbow, <laughs> or a knife. Yeah, whatever yeah. it is, whatever. It I is. mean, you think about you think about just what three weeks ago, you had white folks taking over capitals of states with fully, fully, fully armed to the teeth spitting in the faces of police officers who are, you know, trying to protect themselves for COVID-19 and we can't walk down the street. You, you don't see a difference in that. This is why I'm like, fuck equality. We need to talk about equity. Equity. We, there is no way that Kim Creighton is going to have the same experience as a white person doing the same thing in this country and have the same consequences period, until we start dealing with the inequity. You can give both of us cookies, but if you shit on my cookie before you give it to me, I'm not going to eat that cookie. But we both have cookies, so we're equal. Mm-mm. I mean, it's the epitome of why the whole argument about all lives matter, blue lives matter, oh. it's like, it's like, it's white people saying, but the, what happens when, you know, an, a, a white person is killed? Or, do you have the same sympathy? And you just kind of like, if, until you have the same sympathy for us, I saw something the other day, y'all. I have not processed it yet, so I'm going to say it rawly here. A white woman was comparing all animals' lives matter to black lives matter. So why haven't you processed that? Because <laughs> I know what it is. When I say that, it's like I'm like when I say I don't process it. I'm not. I'm saying that I. This is a narrative that always repeats, yes. and I'm just like I'm just letting this this one video go. But this woman got on video on video. <laughs> And basically said, 
I don't understand why people don't connect the dots that Black Lives Matter and Animals Lives Matter. And you're just like, so you Ugh. still see us as animals, right? It's like, you don't even see us as humans. But go it's, back to the picture, the video of the lady in the park. How many people were pissed off because people showed a video of the dog getting choked? Now, I yeah. love me some dogs. I love me some dogs. But not over a black man's life. Right. They were more concerned over the animal than they were over his and, life. And, 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 I, and that was, but the, that, that's the thing that gets me. If she goes to jail or court for anything, it will be from abusing that animal. Mm-hmm. Because they came and got that damn dog that day. Sure it did? was a shelter dog. And that shelter came and got that dog from that lady. And she would never, they banned her from, or, um, from, um, from um, adopting again. That's what, if she, if she sees any justice, it will be because of her treatment of that animal. And again, I love me some dogs. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the pace, the place that we are in right now, even with the protests that, that are happening, is the way in which people, especially white America is always like, but you destroy property and you're just like, I'm sorry, there's two things that's a problem here. If you go back to Tulsa, y'all destroy property, stole land from us, not to mention the natives that you stole land from mm-hmm. by coming here, <laughs> but you've also murdered us with no one being held accountable, but all of a sudden you're worried about property. It's like property can be replaced, lives cannot. And so I have a hard, I have a huge problem with the way that narrative is always told that when we protest, we're the violent ones, but the guys walking around with the guns and, you know, and, and spitting in police officers' faces are not. And the and, and I think Ava DuVernay is the one that said this and it stays with me now, is the the fact that there are people who can walk around here with the presumption, the privilege of the presumption of innocence that we will never have. And it goes back, let's do a history lesson. Not very long ago, we were also that property. Mm-hmm. So to, to them, we're still property. So we're property destroying property. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. So it's not even humans destroying property. We are these things that are property. And so when they say, um, make America great again, let's go back. That's what they want to go back to. They may not be able to articulate it. They not, may not even have the conscious understanding that they've been dripped and bathed in white supremacy all of their lives and that they see us fundamentally as something that can be bartered. And also, let me speak to this. Whiteness has never been original. It is always stolen always co-opted, always taken from, appropriated from other cultures. So this was what I, mm, this is why I challenge, show me something that's original. Show me something. Show me one thing. This is why I continue to say white people, particularly these dudes who get to do and make and cause wreak havoc in tech are nothing but mediocre white dudes in tech. Show me where you can compete with somebody who's been told all their life that they have to give 110%. Show me. That was a few uh, hammers down on those nails there. You really <laughs> hit a few points about tech culture and, you know, the things that we're trying to converge is literally like universal love. Let's get to this moment, you know, and I come from a solidarity point. So I'm going to bring just this little bit, a little bit back. Filipino history has a few parallels with black history, black American history. My people were enslaved for 400 years, 300 years, until we rose up against the Spaniards. And at that moment, the United States came in and took over for another 100 years. So that's about 400 years of just ridiculous oppression. Now, fast forwarding to me, I don't even know my ancestors past my grandmas. And the fact that I can't understand my history is something that I've been yearning for for a very long time. And what happened 
for me was that black culture, black community, black women primarily have helped me understand um, and helped me cultivate my own identity. And that is why I vocally stand up because my best friends are strong black women and they're exhausted. I mean, they can't even tweet like to tweet to say I'm exhausted. So here I am. What am I to do? Let me go. Let me go, you know, rile up my Twitter and keep this conversation going. I'm about the discourse. I'm about the dialogue because the only way through the mud is through the mud. Like you've got to walk through this. So I come from a place where I celebrate black culture because we consume it every day. It's the number one product of the United States. Not black just the United States. The world. Globally. Globally. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and the, the levels of anti-blackness in this world mm. while consuming our stuff yes. is ridiculous. Yes. And, you know, that 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 understanding of whiteness and projecting whiteness, colorism is quite prevalent in my culture. I was told every day that my hair was too kinky to straighten it. We were using dark and lovely dye, lye relaxer on my hair since nine years old, since mm. I was nine years old. I stopped using it about 2013. It's mm-hmm. taken a long time to just even take that little piece of, you know, systemic injected self-hate that just propagated through my ancestors all the way down to me. Like I had to break that moment, you know, and like I tweeted about this, uh, I want to say yesterday. And I said that, you know, that type of like colorism and that just berating of don't stay out, don't stay out in the sun. You're going to get too dark. You know, go brush your hair. Your hair's too crazy. You'll never get a job like that. That was what fueled my my teenage rebellion at this point. You know, like so, I really, really just stand with Black America, Black Americans, my sisters, you know, and my brothers in this fight because we will. It's strength in numbers at this point. We we must get our voices heard, and we will. You said something, uh, several things that I, um, another thing that I always say, <laughs> black women are the moral compass of this country, period, 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 period. If you're not listening and f- you listen, you just don't follow and then you fuck up. Um, and then you come back to us. But with mm-hmm. black women, if there is an issue that is important, be it, um, in the LGBTQ community, be it in the disability community, to be it in any other isms, where it intersects with blackness, those women are the moral compass. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the, uh, the, the thing you talked about, and this is the, about the more model minority myth. Mm-hmm. So many people have internalized race, uh, white supremacy and anti-blackness because those are the systems that we were all raised in. And so this, I'm going to be honest, is why my audience is white people. Because as an educator, I can quickly come in and say, stop doing that. This is why you're going to stop doing that. And this is what we're going to do in return. Even in that, I understand that I'm educating the oppressor while I'm also processing my own oppression. I do not have the bandwidth. And you say we're tired. I don't have the bandwidth to process the oppression of black people plus my oppression and to get any work done. I would be on my knees forever. So I do what I what I am good at. And that is educating and, and setting boundaries with white folks who ain't never had boundaries before. And it takes discomfort. Like you said, going through the mud, it takes you to hit that wall. You have to be willing to hit the wall constantly because you don't have the perspective. 
You don't have the lived experience. And as Serene says, you don't have any. You, If it has not happened to you, you don't believe it. So for me in our community, one of the things is, and this is why I, I don't like compassionate coding. I don't like the whole empathy thing that we're doing in tech because that requires someone to actually have a give a damn and self-develop. That is a skills that you, empathy, compassion are skills that you develop. I don't have time as a marginalized person in tech to wait for you to develop that while you're still harming me. I need you to get to a point where if I say this as a black woman, that this has the potential of harm, you don't even have to understand it. Just know that this is a, a, an inflection point for me to make a different choice. I'm not a trans black woman, but I know that if they say something is harming them, I'm not going to ask them to, to dig up their trauma and show me the scars before I say, you know what? Just, okay, that is a problem. What? Let me figure out how to do something so that I am prioritizing the most vulnerable. When we get there, that's when the equity question will be answered. When we're prioritizing the most vulnerable, the equity question will be answered. So for me, um, part of the work that I've been doing with um, actually Human First Tech, not Stop on Violence Against Women, is a focus on exactly that. And I, I've said this before about tech. If tech spent more energy focusing on the most marginalized when they were building tech, we would be in a different space at this moment. We spent so so much. We spent so much time, and the and the issues here are we constantly talk about an umbrella approach in technology, but but we don't really mean the umbrella. We mean that we're we're going to make sure that in the end, the people who are the most privileged are just as protected as us. And the truth is, the people who are causing the harm are the white people who are in the system, right? We can't kick them out the system, but we're still catering to their to their needs over the most marginalized. And I do believe that if we start from, and I've always said this, there is no tech fix for the human condition. I've, I've quoted that multiple times. It's been one of my major quotes. The fact that technology exists does not change the social construct of which we're living in. And most people don't understand the connection between that. And so if we don't focus on the most marginalized, we do not have the fix we need. I was reading something the other day about the nonsense with Zoom. And, you know, one of the people speaking up is someone who still believes in the fact that that they should bring in all these other people, but that the solution should be with fixes for everyone, not a fix for one or two groups. And you just like, that's why we don't fix anything, Mm -hmm. because you're, you're only fixing in the end for the most privileged. So if you have the most privileged at the top and you got the, the most marginalized here and you think you're coming down here and not getting to the bottom, you're not solving them. You're not solving anything for them. You're giving like some space for these people to feel like they're close to the people at the bottom and they're, and they're not. And so their experiences are completely different. So unless we start really thinking about that from a technological framework and I get it, you know, most of this is capitalism and profit margin. We got, that's America, but we also have to remind ourselves that part of where we are today is because of the concept that we were their property. That the reality is we were, we were free labor. So they got to make money off of free mm-hmm. labor. Like the things I tell people that still it, it, American policies that you don't realize that you're participating in every day. Tip workers is based on slavery. Yep. The electoral college is mm-hmm. based on slavery. The police department yes. is based on slavery. Capturing slaves. <laughs> okay. It's like slavery is written and it was like slavery. And, and, and then when white people tell me slavery is over, I'm just like, I'm sorry. Can we guys stop saying that? Because let's just be clear. Most of these policies are based on 
1619, us being enslaved and other people are now being caught in those policies, i.e. Jim Crow and all the likes, but it's still based Mm -hmm. on keeping us from being able to vote. So in the 13th Amendment, which most people don't even want to address, slavery is still written there. America has slavery. They wrote it in the Constitution. Go read it. In the worksheet, the one sheet that was given to me, there was a question there and it said that, you know, what is your super power yeah. and how did you come about it? So I really prepared for that oh. and I'm going to say it and then I'm going to ask you a question um, about ooh, the topics that we're talking about today. My main superpower is that I am a bridge. I am a bridge and I do my best to take both sides of an equation and equalize it, you know, like really try to bring the two sides together. And I feel like I got that superpower from learning about sisterhood, my twenties and just, you know, being, um, and my leadership style is of inclusivity and diversity. We all know that it's a scientific fact that it's proven that diverse minds can you know, be more powerful and be more productive and bring better solutions for, you know, we don't have to answer now, but I'd like to ask the Caucasian panelists here, what are your action steps directly at work to help bridge this gap of inequity of, you know, your fellow workers, you know, your fellow colleagues that are not of Caucasian descent, you know, to bring them up to leadership, to bring them up to a higher visibility in their in their professional lives. I can say for myself, I really have a lot of hope for the company that I work for. It is a, it's a San Francisco tech company, so all the problems that come along with that. But uh, personally, I try to sponsor my black colleagues at work and do everything I can with my privilege to lift them up and give them the opportunities that otherwise might be denied to them or they might be overlooked for. I also encouraged our management to engage directly with an ad hoc group that started from the bottom up of people of color at my company. And um, I try to stay out of the way. I try to listen. I try to offer support and sponsorship where I can. I do my best to leverage my privilege that's not just at work. I've been, um, I've been doing my best in this domain since about 2013, 2014 when I had my awakening moment and my domain is tech. So I do what I can in the tech field to make everyone have greater opportunities to, to the kind of life changing potential that working in tech can bring. I don't feel like it's enough. I'm constantly asking myself how I can do more right now. Um, with everything going on, I don't think that it's uh, safe for me as a trans woman to go to protests. I know it's less safe for other people, but I have uh, my family to look after. I can't risk that. So I'm giving money. That's uh, that's the best I can do is giving money and amplifying voices and um, trying to stay out of the way. I'm kind of in an opposite situation. Um, I'm not working right now and I've been having trouble finding work. So I've been trying to give money where I can, but that's like a tough thing for me. But one thing I do have a lot of is time and energy. And so I have been trying to be at protests, 
listening to it's been really tough in buffalo because like everyone in the community is listening to what like the black community organizers here are asking for the protest to be like and so that's been really frustrating to to see and so i've been trying to listen and see what our community organizers are asking for us to do and like pressing other white people to like listen to that um, yesterday I went out for a march and black community organizers were there and were like, Hey, you know what? We're not marching today because we marched yesterday. We marched for six miles and we've already done that and it's done. And we talked to the city government and the BPD and we have this agreement that we're working on with them. And like, we have to give them a chance to honor this agreement. And if they don't honor it by a certain date, then we will be back and marching again. But until then, we will not because we're showing them that we're serious about this agreement. And so the march got called off and we didn't go. And there were still people there who were like, well, we want to go anyway. And I was trying to express to people like, you know, if you think you're here to like help, then you should be listening to what people are asking you to do as a way to help. And so um, what I started doing yesterday when the march was supposed to be instead is I'm taking, I'm getting trained in like crowd de-escalation tactics so that at future protests when they do go down, because I do suspect that we will have to continue this at the date when they said that we would, because I don't trust our city and our police department to make good on this agreement. I want to be able to like protect people then. And so I'm like, we're trying to put together a safety group of people who can be at protests, who have training in crowd safety and de-escalation. Um, we're talking about, you know, how can we neutralize tear gas? How can we protect people when this is happening? You know, how can we be safe if we want to put our bodies in between what's going on? And so in this interim period where we're being asked not to march, I'm doing these trainings and encouraging my friends to learn this stuff too so that I want to keep my community safe. I and my community in my neighborhood get gassed while being peacefully protesting on Saturday night. And it hurts me to see my community and my neighborhood hurting in this way. Um, I, I have some questions about that. So, um, yeah, I think white people in this movement, your role is to go to protest if you can. And your ro only role is to be watchful and to put your physical bodies between the protesters and whatever is a direct impact for them. It amazes me, but it doesn't. So this is a, it becomes this, this like I find myself in my head just like laughing at the things I'm about to say because Coraline and I had the last time we at uh, no, off when we when I did this this um podcast. At the end, I don't think it was recorded, but you asked me a question about our, how people are, are seeing our um, advocacy. And I don't get pushed back because of people saying it's ego or that because I'm black. We live, survive on community. We have not gotten where we are by being individuals. So when white people show up to things because that's all you know, you've been told you're special, you're an individual you're only, and this is why Zuck and, and Elon Musk and, and these very harmful people continue to get lauded over because Elon did not make up. He got this stuff from NASA. He's not making this stuff out. He's not pulling this stuff out of his ass. 
he got access to stuff that was already created by our, by our federal government, by our tax money. So when white folks go to these events and they can't do the rage thing because whiteness is designed for chaos and destruction. I don't care how people take this, but that is what it is. It is designed. White supremacy is designed for chaos and destruction. There is no bottom. People need to stop looking for that. So when I saw way too many videos of black folks marching for our right to exist and having to stop what they were doing to talk to white folks about the harm they were causing. Because again, you're never held accountable for anything. And you know only chaos and destruction. So it does not surprise me that they couldn't get their adrenaline rush from not being able to being told they can't march. And they still want to do this thing. That is not your role. It is whoever you're in solidarity to, whoever you're protesting on behalf of, they get to dictate what's going on. This is fundamentally why I'm having a problem with any white voice right now. If you are not black and you are talking, you better have some really important shit to say. Because if not, you need to shut the fuck up and amplify other folks because you're causing a problem. I'm going to give you an example. So Sarah Chips just um, tweeted last night about there's a TMZ video of their leaked video. I mean, audio of cops. I guess she's in New York, but it's a, um, a, a brief clip of cops saying, hey, there are people, they're blocking whatever. And then there's a cop that says, just shoot them, run them over. Right. And so she tweets, this was me and my friends. And she says something like the last par- the last sentence of it, this is a joke. And people are telling her this is not a joke. She has no freaking perspective of how to assess risk in these environments. And so I would not feel safe following anything a white person has to say. Because if you think this is a joke, if you can't assess risk for yourself, how can you assess risk for the people you're there to protect? It's, it wasn't a joke. Why would a police officer even say that on on the on the, the the system, whatever you want to call it? This is not a joke. He was in commission of his job. Fundamentally, I need white folks to sit down and shut the fuck up. Go to the things. Do what's being told. That is it. On Twitter, please stop um, sharing and recommending white fragility. White fragility is problematic. White fragility is a term that um, Robin DiAngelo um, developed in an academic term that explains why white people get so upset and uncomfortable when it comes to conversations about race. Outside of the classroom, white fragility is used to harm people and to for white folks to sidestep the consequences of their behavior. So when they do something, it becomes that's just their white fragility. D'Angelo didn't talk about the consequences of white fragility. The consequences of white fragility is harm for those people that 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 whatever is 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 directed to. There is a cause and effect to everything. And when we don't talk about that, this is why I had a problem with Bernie Sanders. And this is not about political, but it's about everything is not about class. And when you make it about class, then white people think we're equal. We're not. Covert deaths are hitting native black and brown communities because the systems are designed for us to die yes that's all thank you thank you for your voice 
there are there are a couple things I want to make sure that we are clear about. And the the thing that I think is so important because I think that even even the stories of other cultures, I think is important for us to make sure that we're also inc- incorporate. I think that a lot of what America is is a foundation on anti-blackness and that anti-blackness is, is global. I mean, we have our own colorism, right? Like we have our own versions of that. I think almost every culture has a version of that and that becomes part of a narrative. I tell people all the time, I'm a product of Northern migration. My version of the world is completely different, but most people think that because I grew up in the North, i.e. Harlem in the Bronx, i.e. urban, that somehow I don't know anything about middle America racism. I don't know anything about Southern racism. I know a lot about Southern racism. Why? Because I'm a product of Northern migration. I still had to go South my entire childhood. There was no out. There was no opportunity to be like, I can't do this. The only time I don't go now is because I'm an adult and I have to pick and choose when I can do that. But as a child, it was not. You didn't have a choice. Not I a choice. I, I had no <laughs> choice. And I always tell people, like, when I describe the town that my family originally came from, it's like you get to the city limit sign, you go a couple of, I don't know, blocks, you get to the other part of the city limit sign that says you're leaving the city limits. Like, you're on that one road that there's only two roads in and out of my town. And if you don't make the turn, you will not get to my town. And most people are on that main road and never drive to my town. And so I find that very interesting because I try to explain that to people. It's like, my town is tiny, but I believe, I always tease about this, like, almost everybody in there is family. (laughs) Like, they're all related. <laughs> but by marriage or by blood. <laughs> what, there's 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 all there's always kinds of things going on there. But the other part about that was that you know how political my mom was when she went north and how she kept that with me and my mm-hmm. understanding of that. Not only was I dragged to the south all the time, I was dragged to the polls my entire childhood. I had no choice but to go to the polls. I had no choice but to participate in what was going on in my in my social construct. And for those that don't know and don't hasn't seen me tweet about this, she was a Republican. She died a Republican. So I went to the polls when levers were being pulled, and you can actually see who went to which machine. I had my mother on one side and my mom on another, and I sat in the middle of the room watching my neighbors come pull levers. I was like, who's pulling lever where? I got to see what my community looks like. The fact that uh, white people still think that they can tell me what my community looks like because I'm all of a sudden an individual who's telling them something they don't understand or some narrative they, that they believe that isn't true. As I'm telling my story and my, and my community story, they're, they're willing to say in those moments, all of a sudden I'm an individual. Prior to that, I'm just another black girl. I'm part of the culture of blackness. But when I tell my narrative, all of a sudden I'm an individual and they and they want to remove me from my culture as if they would know more about my culture than I do. And that's a fundamental problem across the board. But when we talk about the aspects of the way in which white supremacy has used model minority for them to f- have the same sensation that they know more, uh, especially in tech industry, like each industry has their cultural uh, step steps of hierarchy. And then the tech industry is very much white men first, then Asian men, and then the rest of us, including Asian women that follow that line. The the concept that black and brown people have any any technological knowledge my entire life, since I was 10, I've been told that it's not changed. I am not 10 anymore. <laughs> and it, I still hear those same narratives. Those pieces have not gone away. When Hidden Figures came out, yeah, they were like, black women didn't exist in this field. And yet, 
at the time, you know, when I was coding, Katherine Johnson existed. And yet people would tell me I still couldn't do what I was doing. Mm. I think, I think that there's multiple, and, and mind you, mind you, let me, let me just caveat this so you understand what I'm saying, because this is the hard part for most people. And this is my truth. At 14, my mom finally realized that the system of which the school I was going to as local to the project was not benefiting me. And I was above, I was testing by fifth grade above reading and math levels that were above high school. Even my own community was telling me that I can't be smart or I, like that my grades didn't matter. And had teachers that were giving my mother and I a hard time, especially me, because I was loud. Then I'm loud now. That part didn't change. <laughs> and and my mother used to say that it was quite clear that if someone pretended or said anything, they made it look like I wasn't smart. She was like, I knew I was smart and I was not letting anybody <laughs> even come close to saying that I wasn't. And that became a marker for what the decisions my mom had to do at that point. She kept me out of school for three weeks because when um I decided that, you know, I, what I wanted to do next, I basically said to her, like, of course, my, you know, of course, you have to decide on what the, what the proper school system is for me to match my my intellect. But her solution was go to the white district. And I was like, I'm not going to the white district. I know black and brown people who look like me, who have come from the same cultural background that I have, who are also smart. Find them. And because I forced my mother to find them, she did. She had to go down to the superintendent. She had to do a whole bunch of other stuff. But the concept that white people were smarter than me or or smart as me was the only thing my mother had a solution for. And that's very cultural as well. So when I got to go to that junior high school that had all walks of life, of all, all the people of color that I can imagine from Muslims to Arabs to Asians to, to uh, like people didn't, don't even understand that, that that was even true in Harlem. That, that that was even possible. And yet that was my existence. So I know what it's like to understand what that existence is and watch other people learning other people's cultures, having to navigate around that and us getting to know each other. I know what that looks like. I live that. I know we can have that. It's unfortunate that there aren't enough people like me who know what that existence is and know how to work through that. That's what's unfortunate to me because I know that I live that from junior high school to high school before I decided to leave New York City because they went after the Central Park Five, who is now the exonerated five, and they came after us. The, the Army of Blue came to my community and didn't leave because a white woman was raped in Central Park. And how many times since then has that narrative been told? I'm just saying. We just went through it with Amy Cooper doing it, right? It's 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 trying to get people to understand that I know what it could look like if we want to work together. But if you want to accept what whiteness gives you and that's your only option and that's the choice you're going to make because of colorism and other choices, then we can't get there. We'll never get there. I know that I am in the middle of the line of my color dynamics, but you have to know that my mom from the South could drink from the white water, white only water fountains in the South and nothing happened to her. Yeah, she was white. (laughs) <laughs> she was white passing. Good Lord. Okay. So I know the distance between those things. And that's the woman who died a Republican, the woman who dragged me to the polls, who taught me what to look like. She's also the woman that told everyone in our family, every time I can remember. And when she died, I said it at, at her funeral because I had people in the South not even know who the freak she was. And I was just mad. I had to get up. My uncle was like, no, sit down. I was like, I got to get up. And I got up and I said, 
you know, I'm looking out here in my family in this south, southern town that they wanted to bury her in, which she didn't want to be buried in. <laughs> she left that she left that town for a reason but she basically you know she it was that reminder in that moment when i looked out into the crowd i was like we were a bouquet no matter how complicated or how, what we looked like that we were a bouquet yes, yes. of flowers and and when i said that one of my, my cousin my first cousin afterwards he said he was doing fine and so i got up there and said that and he just bawled because he remembered like all of all of who she was and what she was trying to bring across from south to the north and keeping us connected. Her being missing is still a missing connection for my family. Just be clear. She was pretty much the glue. And that's why black women are so important in this mm-hmm. moment and why they're important for the vote. That's what I learned. I know who they who the people were that I had to pay attention to and I knew what to do. But I also understood what the community was. And that included people who came from other cultures. We have more in common yes. than, 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 than we don't from yeah. a cultural perspective. There are a lot of people who operate from whiteness that want to remove their culture mm-hmm. and, and, and then force others to remove theirs. And I, I strongly disagree with all of that on multiple levels. I watch the way that the other cultures respect their elders, the way mm-hmm. we respect our elders. Yes. While I'm sorry, white America, well, y'all want to put your, Oh elders. man. Man, oh, they was they, they screw put them away. They was trying to sacrifice Mama and Papa for the pandemic. I mm-hmm. was like, "Good Lord, I don't care." Grandmama can have one lung, one leg, one eye, and we uh uh-uh. uh we Grandma gonna live as long as we, possible. We not. But I want to go back to Issa's um, comment about you know um I did this podcast and that question about what's your superpower, yeah. and this is my answer. To, and this and I feel this more so today than I have ever felt. Being a joyous black woman is my superpower because it stands in the face of everything that white supremacy says I should, how I should show up, what I should feel and think about myself, what I should feel and think about my community, what service I owe white supremacy, all of that. Every time I get up, I wake up, I roll over, I check my Twitter feed and I go ham that and people just think because the narrative is I'm an angry black woman. So I'm going to lean into that while I'm soaking in the tub, while I'm cooking my I don't know y'all people. What? I'm not upset with you. You're not even my audience. What I'm doing is highlighting to the people who follow me what white supremacy looks like because until now it was only swastikas, hoods, for, um burning crosses in yards. No, it's everything that allows you not to examine whiteness of in, I, you are whiteness is so ignorant of its own existence, and yet it, it, it is old an opinion for everything. It, it, it's funny to sit back and and have people want to engage. First of all, if you're gonna engage with me, one of the rules is you need to do your homework before you. Re- I, I just love it when somebody you know sees a one tweet has not looked at Kim Creighton's anything and decides to engage as if I'm just your average Twitter. Oh my God, you just you just woke up a hornet's nest and you didn't even know it. So let's get this lesson started because it's not about you. I don't care about you. You are nothing. I am an educator. Why am I going to engage negatively with the lesson plan? You make absolutely no sense to me. You are a lesson. You are the lesson plan. This is why I comment retweet. I rarely speak to these individuals personally. I don't need to. 
this is my classroom. I've run this how I feel like it. This is my classroom management. So what I'm doing is highlighting to those students who chose to be here what the problem is. Because it's not just this one thing. So when I was talking about the 13th Amendment, I was, and, and, and let me just make sure that we're clear about Andrew Cuomo. I mean, he has, he's, you know, people keep sort of uh, contrasting him against, you know, Agent Orange 45, that's what I call him. As if, you know, here we have finally have someone who's doing something right. And you just kind of like, no, he's still messing up too. And people don't want to see that because they're looking at this contrast of the white, white supremacist, white nationalist president versus who, you know, who's the governor of New York. And just kind of like, well, you know, we have a different white guy and he's doing better than that guy. No, he's still got his own racial issues and nobody's paying attention to it. Not only the way that he, he slowed down the process to even get people to stay at home and do it, do that initiative, but the other piece that people don't understand. He was literally forcing the prisoners to make desensitizers for those who were in New York. So those in prison who have to be put in cold, you know, uh, have no space to get away from COVID, they can't do six feet apart in prison, but here they are making desensitizers for the rest of New York. That's the great example of the 13th Amendment and why slavery still exists and people don't realize it. And that somebody like that was still instituting that action by doing that. He was using the 13th Amendment to his benefit for the rest of the white New York. Right, because that's how he saw it. Because it didn't that same thing happen in Louisiana? They got rid of because they were um, the the sanitation workers were pissed off because they didn't have um, P, uh, PPE, and they relayed them off and got the, the got the prisoners to start doing sanitation work. Mm. They they also got the prisoners to start making PPE, the thing that yep. they they were exactly. Yeah, there, there, there were there there were prisoners who also were creating PPE for others, but not for themselves in jail. Like those are the examples of of historical frameworks that people want to erase that are literally happening in front of you, and you have no concept of that this is what history was always about. His it was it was allowing that kind of framework. We are their property, even in incarceration. That's what slavery was about, and that's why they get these these individuals who don't get big uh, ch- major checks or even even um living wage. They're in prison, but their bodies are being used. To yeah. help other companies and to help the state when they want that. While, 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 right? Stop and frisk impacts the most black and brown people. Even when uh, this was instituted, white people were not being stopped and frisked the same way as black and brown people in New York City. So Cuomo using black and brown bodies for this moment is horrible it, with black and brown people dying in the most in, 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 in different boroughs in New York City. In addition to the fact that once they stop, stop and frisk, once Bloomberg stopped stop and frisk, crime stats didn't move any different. Yep, exactly. So, and then the next part of that is 70% of black and brown people in, in, in prison are there not convicted. They're de- there for either bail money mm-hmm. or from not being able to have a trial. There's only about 30% of people in jail who are actually convicted of a crime and in jail for that. And sometimes those crimes, those convictions are not actually true, right? We know there are plenty of people who have been convicted or innocent. So the layers of the 13th amendment that we're facing right now, why people are protesting across the globe is about those stories that most white people want to act like doesn't exist and basically say, but what about black on black crime? And this is why they don't want to talk about history. And this is why I always let's, I don't want to have a, if you're listening to this, please go watch, listen to seeing white 
podcast from um, seen on radio because that podcast is for specifically for white people to understand how we got here. This was all a strategy. We need to stop acting like, oops, this just happened. This came out of nowhere. This has been a strategy since they brought us here. And it needs, this is the thing that whiteness needs to understand. It needs to be, and I get it. You're ignorant by, by design. We're all ignorant by design. And, and, and some things that Shireen was talking about is our lived experience was not living up to the, to the, the narrative that we were reading in these textbooks. We knew a whole different thing. You didn't have that. And then we go back to the history of who got to write the textbooks. This is why I have a problem with people who want to use the dictionary version of the definition of racism. Who got to write that definition? I'm going to use a social service, uh, social science definition of racism because it also speaks to why I do not recommend white fragility. It does not account for the effects of racism. It does not. So again, it makes it everybody the same. Again, whiteness loves being the same. When it becomes a group thing, it, 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 it loves, no, we're just, everything's the same. No, we're not, buddy. No, we're not. That textbook thing really resonates with me too. I grew up, uh, I grew up in the South and my community was predominantly black and it was segregated. Where I went to high school, I think in my entire high school career, I had three white teachers and I didn't learn any of this because we were working off these textbooks. And that's what the teachers were expected to teach was straight from the textbooks. So I'm one of those people you were talking about. I didn't know about Black Harlem until I saw it on Watchmen. And I'm like, what else don't I know? There's so much history that like I've just never been exposed to. And I consider myself like a decently educated person. And there's so much I don't know. And there's so much work to do. And the system, I totally agree with what you're saying. Kim, it's by design keeping people ignorant. As long as you're ignorant, you're complicit and not know it. I mean, think about what's happening right now. White people are for the first time really taking in what they're being seen. They've been seen over and over. Now we've been seen in our communities forever. So it's finally, you're, you're seeing it. And now you have this, again, it's once you know better, you do better. So now white folks are making, having to make a, a moral decision, an ethical decision. Am I going to remain complicit or am I going to do something? And this is why I wrote the um, piece, um, Dismantling White Supremacy in the Five Stages of Grief. Because um, y'all get stuck in y'all feelings. Oh, let me talk about this, please. White people, your feelings are your responsibility. You go get therapy. You talk to your friends or whatever. Do not take bring that to us. I don't, I give two fucks about your feelings. Deal with it. Move on. We got work to do. Anything you're feeling is not anything in comparison to what we live with every single day. I have a shirt that says fuck civility. I have to think about where I'm going in my day when I walk out the house. If that's a shirt that I can wear and not be harmed. You don't think about that. But no, that it's more than that though. I mean, I mean, I, there's two things I want to say here. Um, the the challenge that we have is that most people in general, and that includes us to some extent, operate from the framework of what what our lived experience is. And so history only starts when we were born and ends when we die, right? That's a common framework and that's a problem. The difference between white America and us is that most of our ancestors are telling the stories that are being whispered down and passed down. And that's why 
we have a different historical narrative because all the whispers, right? I have, like, I tell people all the time, after my mom died, all the things she was preparing me for, what's my superpower? Is, is the fact that I realized that even though she didn't understand my talent, which was tech, she understood enough for me to whatever my talent was going to be, I still had to be connected to the community and connected to politics. So what, what's my superpower? I have the ability to do the tech part and do politics at the same time. And me coming to the political mecca, IEDC, was completely a mistake. Not a mistake. It, there's a whole story around that. But the fact that I ended up here with that as my backdrop, I, I realized, I finally realized when I started dealing with uh, the Stop Online Violence work and Online Violence Against Women and the connections to tech and policy, I was like, oh, I landed exactly where I was supposed to be, exactly where my skill sets were supposed to meet up. It wasn't just the fact, because when I went off to college, I was told that I can't get a job in tech. I'm a black girl. How do I think that I can code and, and, and be a programmer? My, my counselors told me I went to a math and science high school, specialized, an accelerated program. I was taking college courses in the evening. I was also working full time because I was taking care of myself. And I was still being told that me going off to college to be a programmer was something that I should not be thinking about and to be reasonable. Okay. Those are still the narratives that are told to us. So, of course, I was trying to be reasonable. I was like, okay, I'm going to do the career thing, but I ain't dropping the tech stuff. So, I'm going to D.C., which is where I ended up. Not by choice. I did not want to go to D.C. I'm just going to let you know that. I ended up in a predominantly black, you know, college that changed my view of my own people because I'm watching my own people do different things. I'm like, aren't we all poor? And they're like, uh, what you talking about? And I'm just like... Uh, I grew up in the projects. Don't you know? Like, so, so I had to learn. That was one of the like blessings of what I had to learn was that even, even people who looked like me came from different perspectives on this field. And that's why I get upset when people like, Oh, if you're not it, like, w- with the uh, Joe Biden's gaffe, right? If you're, if you're, if you don't see the difference between me and Trump, you're not black. It's like, there are black conservatives you forgot. Like, did, did you miss that they're black conservatives? Does those people still actually exist? And so. The, the concept that I still don't know my community more than any white person who's saying something like that, right? It's like you're saying that yeah. because you, you're making an assumption. That's not true. Because I went back and forth with the South and the North, I know exactly the differences in my community. I know exactly what that looks like. You don't because you're an outsider. That's completely yep. different. And so for me, when I had to deal with what, like, what my superpower was, I, you know, I finally like fell into what it was. I didn't know what it was when I left to go but but i you know and my click ended up ended up being people who went to go work for aol in the beginning stages those people ended up millionaires i didn't go why because i was being practical (laughs) that part dreaming small is the worst you know the the barriers (laughs) we have to break to not be pegged into dreaming small i'm still mad at myself for certain choices because i had to be practical and Mm -hmm. You know, and my because contemporaries are the same. They're founders, you know, startup founders, all of that, you know, all of these things. And and I took the long road. <laughs> exactly. But but I still ended up where I was supposed to end up as far as as far as I'm concerned. And so even though in that moment, because I didn't understand, like they didn't graduate. So let's just be clear. Y- yes, they ended up being millionaires, but they never graduated from school. And to me, my family's dynamic was that I had to graduate. And so I, that, I was going to do that under any in every circumstance because that was part of our legacy and that was something I needed and to that's a different thing see that's a di- when people talk about the fact that we have we are responsible to family and our community 
is something that whiteness has a, a horrible time grasping. And I wanted to, I just I apologize for interrupting, but I wanted you to, because that is important. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my ultimate goal to go to college was to, to, to finish, and I wasn't going to stop. And even though these people who also happen to be black, I mean, they, they went off and were, and, and went to go be millionaires instead. So I was like, fine, I'm not going to do that. But they were like, come, come with us, come with us. And I was like, no. And so somebody asked me later, it was like, do I still feel guilty about that? And I was like, no, because I think that my path, the way my path went was the right path. I don't think I would have created Digital Sisters in 1999 if I had gone to work for AOL. And, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the part that even though it felt small at the time, is that what people, what I now realize is I broke, I broke a timeline. Yep. I, I created something that nobody else thought about in that moment. And I promise you, I would not have done that if I was still grinding at AOL trying yes. to survive. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so to me, even though I was being practical in that moment, by the time I graduated, I had already sort of done all the pieces and then decided I'm going to go do this full time. And, and it was hard. It was, it wasn't easy. It, there was a lot of resistance and I just felt like my background gave me the, the wherewithal to get through that resistance in the tech industry. And it still is what, what gets me through now. Cause I still have those guys who show up and telling me like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to develop use cases on what we should be doing for decentralized web right now. And everybody's like, well, why are you talking? You don't know anything. And half of them don't know anything that I know, <laughs> you know, and it's, and, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm constantly up against because they think that they are the solutions to the problem. When I'm telling them they are the problem, you're the problem. Here are the solutions. Yep. Let's get, let's get to the solutions. And to me, a lot of that is about that framework that we still operate in this country that, that, that the, that the villains in this American horror story are, are white men and the guys who think they're saving us are white men mm -hmm. and everybody in between are not given the same space or the same presumptions of privilege about what they know to be true to solve the problem. And you speak, that's my saying. I would never have, I've had to, if I, if I could give you a number of how many times my aunt who loves me dearly um, was like, you need to get a job with benefits. You need to get a job with benefits. You need nothing about my path. I say I was a rebel. So nothing about my path was planned out, but sitting here today, I could not be doing what I'm doing without what I what I've been through. I could not manage myself on stage or with white people the way I do if, if I did not, if I were not certified special needs educator. I understand that I need to meet my all my students where they are. We all have to get to the finish line by the end of the school year, but we all not going to get there together. So I need some who are advanced. Hey, you need to go back and pick up your friend and help them out because so, we can all get to this thing together. I'm going I'm going to do the path. I'm going to push you. But everybody is different. Also, great classroom management. Uh, this is when you see chaos. You could you could go down the hall and see teachers who had bad classroom management and that nothing was going on in there and just looking through the window. I could have organized chaos in my class and my students still were on task. They were having fun because they knew there were bad. Everybody needs boundaries. You feel safe in boundaries. Boundaries helps us feel safe because we know what, okay, that right there, if I'm going to go out and experiment with it, I already been told that that's a problem, but I'm going to go over there because, but I know I have this safe space. So the reason that, and it's increasingly white dudes listen to me and pay me is because of that very classroom as they've never had boundaries before. 
they've never been told how mediocre they are and how not special they are. And that, hey, there's some things you, yeah, what you're thinking ain't, 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 ain't that. It, it ain't that. And it's not only not that, but it's going to cause problems. And the fact that there is a level of discipline there because whiteness is built for chaos and destruction. So when I put boundaries on how you're going to engage with me, they have clear understanding. If I do this, when she goes off on me, ah, what did I do? So for them, it's like, oh, what did I do? For others, it's, ooh, I, oh, I screwed that up. Okay, I can learn from that because she's left, she left breadcrumbs. She's an educator. She's been scaffolded in this lesson. So she's left breadcrumbs. I have something I could girt this understanding because I don't. This is a, a place they have no idea how to play. This is a game they don't know how to play. But also it's understanding lack of inclusion is a risk management issue. So what they're seeing now, we're not in the industrial age where you give somebody a manual and you go on assembly line because we all going to make widgets. But your widget has to look like everybody else's. We're in the information age where knowledge is key. You cannot get not. So you're hiring people for their lived experience. This let me repeat that. We should be hiring people for their lived experience. Whiteness does not know how to do that. So when we talk about this and I put boundaries on them, they're understanding, frustrated, they're, they get upset. Sometimes I have to just say, hey, 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 we ain't having that conversation. We're going to move on because we're not having that. It's some very clear classroom management because they need to understand and figure out how to build products and services that do not harm the people who are most vulnerable. They have no clue. So it goes back to Shireen's statement. White people are not equipped to prioritize this stuff. They can't do it. They don't. It's not something that they're equipped to do. And that's by design. But the world has changed around them and they're having a hard time catching up. I say this all the time. I would not want to be a white male right now for nothing. They are catching hell. I don't care, but they're catching hell. I can, I can, I can say, hey, I get it. I get it. Your world is being everything you knew about yourself is being turned on its head. No, it's true, but that's not new. I, I mean, we had the civil war over the people's worlds being turned on their heads, right? That was the whole purpose of the civil war. Uh, but that goes back to the thing where you said earlier, we have to keep repeating history because nobody keeps yeah. going back. It's the, it's the same thing that happened in the sixties. I just, I just, um, and that's how we got in the sixties with the, um, with all the people, everybody's talking about, you know, equal rights or whatever. That's how we end up with the Powell memo. That's how we end up with conservatives taking over our government because it was a reflect, it was a um, reaction to all of this. We've been here every time and it happened with, um, with the, the, um, the, uh, suffrage. We were on a track together until white women realized that black men were going to get the vote. And then they screwed us all. There's, I mean, the 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 whole uh, the the women's vote piece is also really important to to bring up for the 19th Amendment because there's always this assumption that all women got the right to vote, and the truth oh, was even during that time we didn't, um, and no woman of color got the right to vote. Only white women did because of Jim Crow and until the Voting Rights Act, which got the Voting Rights Act that got gutted recently, which allowed all the craziness that we're now faced with. Um, so they knew that those, those acts did have impact. I have a banner on both Facebook and Twitter that basically says that white people haven't voted in a democratic president for over 50 years. Because if you look at the numbers of 
how white people vote and, and how how we vote. There's a drastic difference and, and most people don't want to deal with that reality because it's true. I, I do get a lot of people's feelings bent out of shape um, about that because they're like, but we voted 48% this one year. And I was like, that one year, 48% still ain't 50 just mm-hmm. FYI, <laughs> you still didn't move to the 90 category. Like we have. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We ain't the same, boo-boo. And this is the thing with um I, this Biden thing. Black voters, and, and, and this is where that low edu- low information I was wanted to slap. I, oh, now this is when I, you don't come after our, our elderly. Don't come after our elderly for saving your asses. You do, we respect our elderly. Our elders, who have had dogs turned on him, who have had hoses turned on them, saved our d- democracy because they knew that these yoga woke white folks were not going to vote for Bernie Sanders, period. It was not a thing of that um, Biden is not racist. He's racist like every other white person is racist. It is not degrees of racism. It is the fact that he is also proving that he's willing to listen to black people, and he has a record of being able to build a coalition. What I saw with Bernie Bros were a bunch of people who looked very much like Trump supporters who believe in revolution, turning tables over, and who those tables will land on? My black ass. So no, we were not going to have that. It is not. It was not a a a wave of a flag of. Of, of oh, ooh, we believe in Biden. We come from communities that that have a strategy of risk reduction. He is the least he is the least likely person to cause us additional harm. Will he call cause us harm? Oh hell yeah, he did that last week. Every time he damn opens his mouth, he's gonna say something that he shouldn't say. But this is why he needs a black woman as a um, VP choice. If he brings in a white woman, oh he gonna have hell to pay. I really like um, what you touched on, both of you, about history and keeping the narrative and, um, you know, really defining how Black culture and Black history is passed down through, you know, Serene, you said, whispers. And it's that oral tradition. Yes. And a lot of, I mean, my culture is the same. You know, if this COVID pandemic kills and takes away our elders. Yes. Then we are again at loss. We are. We have. We lose so much. Leg- we're, we're we're losing. We're losing wisdom. Wisdom. Thank you. That is the perfect thing. But and, also legacy. I think you were going to yeah. say the right word. Yeah. Legacy. Yeah. And it's part of it, it's part of our foundation foundational legacy. We yeah. we know that to be true, and we honor that. Exactly. Go ahead. And one of the things is that. You know, how are we in, you know, in our positions of privilege in technology trying to uh, capture this wisdom and legacy? You know, um, I work at the library, an online library and an archive, and I push for people to archive their work, black creatives, brown creatives to archive their work for free, you know, forever. Like that's. You know, I, I work at a place where we're trying to keep the preservation of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, one of the things that uh, inspired the Internet Archive was the Library of Alexandria. Mm. What inspired, okay. But what inspires me 
is the library of Timbuktu. And, you know, and because none of, none of Greek, none of Romans can stand without Africa. Thank you. And the richness of cultural richness, intellectual richness. I mean, everything stems from Africa. So fast forward to now, I just want to continue to tell everybody to go to the Internet Archive, archive.org, and upload everything. Save every website you can that captures your distinct culture, your distinct voice, because we are literally preserving it for the next yes. decimation of humanity. So, <laughs> you know. Shereen, did you have this experience? And also you, Isa, did you have this experience where... As your elders were getting older, there were, uh, we started writing down their stories. And this happens every generation, every generation. We have, uh, we started interviewing when we saw that my grandfather's lineage, um, they were, um, getting older. We started recording that information. And it's just so weak because they would sit, you know, when you go like being forced to go to the country, I got out of school for summer break on Friday. I was in the country on Saturday. It was no summer camp, no nothing. That's what you're going down. That's the summer camp. And so we got used to sitting around elder people talking about their experiences, what they did to, to overcome. And that piece, I don't know. Do white people talk about stuff like that? I can say, uh, at least in my family, my grandmother is a hero to me. She, uh, she was in the thick of things in World War II and escaped from concentration camps. She had a, she had a very hard life. And I was the only person in my family who listened to her stories. My dad mm-hmm. would say, Oh, she just says the same shit over and over again. I was the only one in my family who encouraged her to write down all the things she had experienced. And, um, you're right. That is not part of what white folks typically do. You're absolutely right that white folks don't have that kind of relationship with their elders. And uh, I think that's a really sad and fucked up thing. But as you're saying that, though, and it connects to a thing that I've been having, this is why whiteness is, is I use the word wisdom because that's what girts us, that, that history. When you don't have that all, and, and you're designed for chaos and destruction, that's all you know. You have no, this is why Mama and Papa can be sacrificed for the economy because you have nothing to girt anything. That everything is 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 a commodity. Everything is is transactional. Everything I do ch- turn this thing in and I get this thing. But that's that's sort of based on capitalism, right? I mean, let's just think about that. Which which is the problem that I think we're faced with in this moment. Like like we just found out about you know Roe versus Wade, the woman who was you know who who was a part of that decided to sacrifice her belief systems for money, right? That, that, that they, that she went to the other side because there was enough money for her to do that. And then she's about to die and now willing to tell that story, right? The challenge that we face is that even though I, I'm not going to say there aren't people in, in my community or those who, who aren't trying to get that dime from white supremacists because they want to sort of yep. keep, keep doing because that exists for us too. Don't let me start with the diamond and silk thing or the, uh, I hope, they have, I hope they have some money saved, but they also got thrown aside the mm-hmm. minute they started telling exactly. COVID, the minute they started telling COVID lies. And, and that's the part that I don't think people understand. It's like, mm-hmm. we don't have that longevity on those pieces. Mm-hmm. The other key piece that I want to make sure that, that we understand has to do with the fact that the stories, because I feel like my stories 
are always captured. I, I don't feel like I've always gotten every whisper written down and documented. The only thing I have a benefit of, and this is, this is historical. I'm probably the first time I'm probably telling it on the podcast. My mother was kidnapped. And there are news stories about her and articles about her and the articles about my family. And that's part of where my narrative sits. If that part didn't happen, I, I'm not sure that we would be a part of the historical record of this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Like there's, mm-hmm. there's a media piece that, that actually cons, that, that, that sits with us from something that happened to my mother. That got, um, that, that, that something that happened that got white people's attention that they found it was necessary and of value to report about and to document. Yes. So it's documented now, mm-hmm. right? But how many people know that story now? If I tell the story, nobody probably will even remember it, right? This is the same way I feel about the story of uh, Central Park Five or Tawana mm-hmm. Brawley, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's certain documentation, but some of the stories are not told the exact in the entire way or the entire framework because the people who were telling the stories back then and present were happened to be mostly white people with a pen. Yep. Telling their version of our story from the outside. The the challenge that I have is that as we now have like the African American History Museum who has slave narrative, who have family narratives, these are places that people need to go to go get those. I I, re- I repeat constantly, there's a Lynch museum. You need to go to that freaking museum and, and, and see the reality of what was going on during Jim Crow, people stopping us from being able to vote. There's all of these historical narratives that you can go to if you want it. But if you are operating from a family framework, like you don't want to know what the histor- historical frameworks are for you or others, or you feel guilty, so guilty that you just want to act like it didn't exist <laughs> and that you're not a part of it, then we don't move forward. And then the more you wipe off the what you think is the historical frame and don't don't connect the dots, then we then we, we just repeat this over and over. It just it will just be another generation of it. We'll repeat the next generation of it. And then my kids, my grandkids mm-hmm. have to go up against those same people again yep. decades later. Like I the fact that I'm having to go up against what I feel like my grandmother went through. Yep. <laughs> It's ridiculous. It's, like, it's ridiculous. That should not be the case. I should not be doing that. I'm not, I wasn't ready for that. And and, and yet she was whispering that to me. Yes. And that's the yes. point. It's like, she was whispering that to me. Be ready. Be prepared. Yep. Here, I'm giving you all the tools. And I'm still sometimes sitting here going, she told me. Yep. <laughs> you didn't mean, you didn't believe fat meat was greasy. That's what that was. <laughs> told me. And, and, and yet, right. And yet. So to me, the part that we keep repeating is the part that we need to somehow figure out how to stave and hold. And that is not just the education system, because that's part of it. It is the 13th Amendment and the police system. And until we stop those two things or put a wedge in that, this thing will just repeat over and over again. And you'll get people who who are who are both white supremacists and those who don't have a problem with white supremacists existing and allowing the harms to continue. And this is why I want to bring it back to when you brought up 1690 and all the guff that these white historians. 1619. Um, sorry, 1619. 16, yeah, 1619 um, project um, and all the, um, the, the pushback that is coming from white researchers, educators. I need you to put this in this framework. This is because I, I, I can I can always step back and look at people's motives. They have a vested interest, particularly a natural interest that history doesn't change. Because as a researcher, you get paid based on your research. It depends on where you work, what you're allowed to do, who funds you. 
what this project has fundamentally shown is that, and these individuals could embrace it and, and have a totally different career, but that's not how white supremacy work. But what is shown is that all these experts on slavery, blackness are not experts. How do you continue to keep yourself um, um, relevant? How do you continue to get paid when everything that you base your career on has been is being proven in real time to be incorrect? This has been a, an amazing conversation. I'm so happy that we got such an amazing and powerful group of people together. And I hope that listeners of this podcast are learning and being inspired to make some changes in their own lives. We wanted to let the conversation go as long as it naturally flowed today, but we do have to bring it to an end now. And I would like to give the opportunity to our guests to uh, to share their final thoughts before we close off for the day. I would just like to continue to take direct action on what I can do to support Black people, Black Americans in their struggles for equity. And one of the things that I'd like to do is to talk through direct steps. One, check my privilege on site and check others on site. What does that mean for me? That means that when I'm on my Facebook feed and somebody has something gnarly to say or something sideways to say, that will get shut down immediately from my part. And also to continue to amplify and support the Black voices that are close to me, that have impacted me in a beautiful way, and that I want to share their love forward. I just I just want to stand next to you, period. I just want to be beside you. I want to hold your hand, and I want to move humanity forward. I call it the universal love, and part of it is you know, trying to remove this ego because everyone has it, you know, mm -hmm. and it brings defensiveness. And I've seen in just even my professional career that it will blockade so much more progress. So however I can to dispel anything, let me know and I will do it. And I think that's like the, the, the most direct actionable step is to amplify black voices and to be there and to learn. I feel very strongly about the fact that having people like you, having other communities that can relate to us, having the ability to connect for all of us, that we can dispel the white supremacy if we work in unison. And without that, and without us understanding that, and also dealing with our own issues with each other, because, you know, Cross-cultural issues still will exist no matter what happens, whether it's colorism or anti-blackness and the pieces in between. But I do think, and I want to say this really strongly, is that we are more than them. We are way more powerful together and we can change all of this if we work in unison in some way. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to have all the bows, bows and whistles on it, but that, that we understand that we, we come from very similar cultures that we can operate from and move forward with. And to say that I know that my, I think makes white people feel uncomfortable is that all the brown people against the white people. And I want to, I want to make sure I say to that, it's not that we're against you as white people. We're against the white supremacy that puts systems in place that harms black and brown people. And until you divest from that whiteness, which I think is very uncomfortable for many white people because y'all don't understand what that means. 
I don't think that you understand what that future looks like for you, but you have to divest from that in order to live in existence that's even close to the equality of all the black and brown people in this country, especially America, because America was founded on harming black and brown people. The Constitution, even when 1776 happened, there were black people enslaved and Native Americans who were being killed. You have to understand that that's part of your history. That's part of the harm of this culture. And you have to be able to divest from that existence in order to partner up with the rest of us. And we as a group, as a unison group, can change the face of what America should should and would or will look like. I do think there are people out there terrified that America is going to turn brown. I'm sorry to tell you, too damn bad. America is about to turn brown. And you have to deal with the reality of what that means for you. And if if the reality for you is, is fear, then you have not divested. And you have not invested in communities of color and issues that are facing, and facing them. And until you do that, that fear will sit with you and you will not understand what that means. You're so busy thinking about something's going to be taken from you for you to divest when honestly, white people have taken more from black and brown people on this land than anybody else. So that's something that you have to sit with and kind of digest for yourself and then go back through historical frames and understand that so many of the policies that you accept as normal has been based on the bodies and frameworks to harm black and brown people. Tech is not the solution to this. Yes. If you think that you have a silver bullet to this solution, You'll be mistaken. As someone who is a technologist and been coding since I was ten, the answer to this is not tech. The answer is the answer to this is us on the on the ground on a daily basis. The technology can help support some of this, but that is not the solution for the end all be all for this. We have a fundamental problem socially that has been embedded in the tech space as well. And until we, you know, understand that. We don't even understand that half the tech stuff that's happening right now, including face recognition, tracking protesters right now who are fighting against harms to black people. We're not participating in and supporting the the next steps of where we need to go. In summation, both Isa and Serene said some things that I want to. I, I say this when I say that black women are the moral compass of this country. It is my fondest wish that black women and indigenous women get together. Us as a coalition can save the world. And that is speaks to the fact that that's that community. Um, the community has always been what has saved us. Black people do not succeed on the individual thing that uh, whiteness has. We wouldn't survive. I am where I am sitting in the house that I have because my great grandfather was a black man who told white people basically to kiss his ass. And they called him Crazy George because he was not fearful of white people in um, his town. Um, he owned the grocery store. They had to eat. They had to come there. Um, so I come from a history of rebelliousness and and I've just extended that. Um, it is just what it is. We need to understand history. I keep telling white people are whiteness. Uh, and, 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 I, when I, and this is why I say whiteness, because you have no problem with blackness. And I wanted to find a word or, or a way to equalize those things so that one group wasn't considered a group. And then the other one was individuals. That is not 
how we're going to do this. So when I speak of whiteness, I mean all individuals who are white or white passing needs to understand, again, this is not your feelings. You don't know the answers here. This is a place for you to sit back, concede, and give give space to those who... And I'm, I'm, I question anybody who says they're an expert at this. We're making this shit up. We're, we're creating a world that was never meant to exist. This was not meant to exist. We are all making this shit up, and we're all fucking up day in and day out. The difference, though, is, and this is what I need, you fuck up. You learn from it, you make them, you apologize and you make amends. An apology with no strategy to make amends and not to do harm again is a waste. And what you're doing is continue to create scars on a community and on a space that we don't need any more scars. We are humans. When I do my talks, I have been saying for the last two years, white folks who cold, that's not the saving grace. That is not where you need to be. If you want to be of value, again, lack of inclusion is increasingly a risk management issue. Profiting off racism and white supremacy is increasingly a risk management issue. This is where you see this call. Everybody this week is, is oh, all Black Lives Matter. How the hell is the NFL have the nerve to put out something that they're about Black Lives Matter when they would not let this man kneel and have effectively ruined his fucking career? But that's how white supremacy is designed. Again, for chaos and there's no bottom. And this is what corporate blackface looks like. What's happening, though, is... When you make a public statement, I now, as a researcher and as a person who fundamentally talks about how to build businesses that have inclusion and diversity at their core, now have a data point that I now can use to measure your actions against. You gave me that. So thank you, because we're not going away. I feel that this is an apartheid moment. People have been boycotting until it wasn't until capitalism realized that they could no longer profit off either directly or reputationally off apartheid is when you saw the things change. This is why I'm so happy to be in the business side of this about how to build these businesses, because what I need is not only black and brown people to be at the tables of power so we can challenge. We need both. We also need the ability to build our own tables. And we can't do that if everybody has to go into debt like I did getting a business degree. So we need to make space for black and brown people to come to the table. Because, again, as Shireen said, this is not about replacing you. Well, OK, let me let me caveat. If you mediocre as fuck and you ain't trying to change, you need to go. That's just you just need to go. Um, there's no space for you here. If you have a, a, a desire to be successful and to be inclusive and to minimize harm, there's much space for you here because the people you are joining are community builders. As Isa said, we are bridges. We are the only way for you to get to this hallelujah moment that you want to get to. You have to come through us. You have to come through black women in the United States. Bottom line. And so you come correct or don't come at all. I want to thank the three of you for for sharing this with us and sharing this with our listening community. Your voices are powerful, and I'm I'm glad that in some small way we can uh, we can help you be heard. 